I'm Steve Fisher. When we think of science fiction, we think of names like H.G. Wells, Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, Ursula K. Le Guin, Octavia E. Butler. They long ago established themselves and sadly are gone now. But sci-fi continues to thrive. One of the new voices is first-time author Andrew Gilsmith. What I've always loved about the genre is it's just such a great sandbox to play with ideas about consciousness and God and or the existence or non-existence of God. He's here to talk about his work and its intersection with his faith on Life Slices. Welcome to Life Slices podcast. Who is Andrew Gilsmith? That's me. <laughs> I'm a new writer. I've just released my first novel. It's the first in what I think will be a trilogy at some point. It's called Our Lady of the Artilex. And it's really an exploration of the, the you know, what I, what I think of as kind of the fuzzy boundaries at times between faith and science. I wrote it because it's interesting to me. I mean, this is, this is stuff that I've thought about my whole life. I've been in technology professionally since the 90s, been heavily involved in data science, and in college was a religion major and have just always really been interested in, in, in this stuff. So that's, that's me in a nutshell. I like to talk to writers about their process. So tell me, to what degree do you outline your work, create biographies before you, what kind of preparation do you do before you sit down to write? I've asked, I've gotten this question before about this book. And the, 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 the answer I give is I, I spent 30 years researching it because I was reading and reading and reading about the topics that go into it. But I mean, ultimately, I wrote it in about six months. I mean, it just kind of once I got down, once I actually developed the discipline to sit down in front of a blank screen, right, and kind of face that, you know, that that dreadful the terror white space, yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, it it kind of flowed. I I I'm not a planner. I'm not an outliner. I guess I'm what George Martin euphemistically calls a gardener. Others call a pantser. And the reason for that. Well, I mean, you know, I have a little bit of ADHD. That's that's probably the, the core reason. But if there's an artistic reason for it, it's that I, I I get bored easily. Like I don't like to know everything that's going to happen in a story when I'm reading it, and I don't really necessarily like to know everything that's going to happen in a story as I'm writing it. I like to let the characters kind of figure things out for themselves as I'm going. I fully appreciate that. I know I've talked to a lot of writers about it because when I first started writing. I was diligent about outlining, and I found I never stuck to the outline, and it bothered me. I said, I'm always going off in tangents because nothing to do with what I originally started with. And then two things happened. I met a, a guy who wrote North by Northwest, and I said, that's one of my favorite films, and I love it, and, and it's, his name is Ernest Lehman. I said, did you, how, wow. did you outline that? And he said, no. He said, I just kept writing myself into corners and had to figure out how to get out of it. And that like a week later, I saw Neil Simon on a talk show and he said he used to outline and gave it up when his characters always took him in different directions. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, I, I wonder, you know, like not to get too deep, too fast here. I wonder if God created a couple of universes where he outlined things first. You know what I mean? And then <laughs> and realized, wait a second, let's give these guys free will and see what happens. That's going to be a lot more interesting and rewarding for, for everyone. <laughs> I think he should go back to his original outline. It really, 
When you talk about discipline, and I understand that's every writer's nightmare. I think it was Dorothy Parker who said most writers are most creative when thinking of reasons not to write. It's like everyone talks about, you know, oh, my house was never so clean as when I sat down to start a script or a, a novel. So how disciplined are you when you sit down to write? Do you have particular hours that work for you, particular days? Not really. It's it's not for me a matter of discipline. It's more a matter of obsession. So like once I once I'm in it, like I I will avoid getting started mm-hmm. forever because I know once I get started, that's all I'm going to be able to think about and all I'm going to be able to do until it's out. It's a birthing process, you know. It's it's really rewarding, but you know you don't want it to last too long. <laughs> you want the baby out, right? And you, you want to <laughs> exactly. meet the baby. The process is okay, but like you know. It's not always so fun. Um, so for me, you know, yeah, I, I, I don't, I wouldn't say that I'm disciplined, but once I get started, I'm pretty locked in and I, and I go fast, or at least I have so far, right? On, the, on, on this book and the one that I just wrote that's coming out, I think early next year. I mean, your mileage may vary. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've talked to thousands and hundreds of writers or thousands of writers. I'm sure everybody has a different approach to this and it's kind of like whatever works, but yeah, yeah. Obsession, Obsession works for me. <laughs> <laughs> that works. That now, what inspired your interest in sci-fi? And oh, then how gosh. did you find the connection between that and religion? I've always loved speculative fiction. I grew up on Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and Frank Herbert and Dan Simmons and Neil Stevenson and just some of the, you know, some of the Ursula Le Guin, you know, the classics. I think with all of us who are in sci-fi, we just sometimes it's just a escapism. It's like this reality can suck sometimes. It's really, really hard. Sometimes you just want to go somewhere completely and totally different. But what I've always loved about the genre is it's just such a great sandbox to play with ideas about consciousness and God and or the existence or non-existence of God, language, core human nature. It lends itself to that really, really well. Yes, I, I I just was talking to somebody else earlier, and I said I did try to be an atheist at some point, but I found it was too much work. <laughs> I, I can relate to that. Now I know I read that you converted to Catholicism. Yes. What were you? Were you in any religion before that? Nominally, I, I guess I, I I grew up kind of well. I grew up uh, in a Methodist church, but you know, if you'd asked me then and you ask me now, what does that mean? I really couldn't have told you, right? I mean, I don't know what distinguishes it. I mean, and and I mean, no disrespect by that, by the way. Right. Right. Um, Some of my best friends are Methodists, (laughs) but you know, over time, I mean, I, you know, like a lot of people, I I had some traumas early in life. I lost my mom when I was 16 and, you know, then I was going off to college and I just wasn't ready. And I was just so angry about everything. And I, I found this religion class and it was like, oh, wow, this is really interesting. Like, this is kind of like meaning of life type stuff. And, and I liked that, but I thought, this would also be a great way to prove that God doesn't exist. So I can like get past all of this. Yeah. And, and so I went through a a period of, for me anyway, and it's not always this way, obviously, but I went through this kind of like angry atheist phase, but it was kind of nagging at me in the background. And I, I just, over a long period of time, I just kind of was looking for meaning and purpose. And I found a lot of that in science. I found a lot of that in reason, but there's an end point to it, right? Like one of the things that my, that I think my book is about is like, 
the end point of reason is the insufficiency of reason. There are things that we can't know. And there are things, there are questions that just aren't appropriate for science to ask. And for me, I mean, I, you know, I've ultimately found it in Catholicism and others will find it in, in other places, but it's been, it's been a really important part of my life. Let's talk about the book. And how did this idea come about, the Our Lady of the Artilex? And what the heck is an Artilex? Yeah, an Artilex is just, it's just a, a fancy sci-fi word for an android or a robot, artificial intellects. Other people have used that term. But I liked it. It sounded a lot better than Our Lady of the Androids, which, I mean, I, I'm a geek and I love geeky stuff, but that just sounded like, I don't know, it just didn't work. What's it about? It's, it really is, the story begins with, set about 250 years in the future. And there is this vision that the Artilex have been having. And the world leaders at the time assume that this is a hoax or a hack of some kind, as you would. And then one of them, and these are incredibly powerful, intelligent machines, shows up at a basilica in Nigeria claiming to be possessed. And so the Vatican takes an interest in it and sends down an exorcist who also has training as a neuroscientist to, to investigate and see what's going on and try to figure out what this hoax is all about. Well, he quickly discovers that there is more going on and gets drawn into a conspiracy that is kind of global and maybe supernatural. And it kind of just snowballs from there. It's not dystopian. It's not apocalyptic, but it's it's a, a kind of, a, I guess, a meditation on what could happen. We mentioned before we actually got started, I come from the world of TV and film, and we always had to pitch things as to make it easy for an executive or a producer to understand. So you had to do it in one line. Yeah, that was a terrible pitch. Right. I I, I mean, you would have run me out of the studio, I know. (laughs) But to me, as soon as I started reading this book, I said, well, this is Blade Runner meets The Exorcist. Yeah, that's great. I've said Westworld meets The Exorcist Mm -hmm. with, and I, with a little bit, I say with, sometimes with a light dusting of Snow Crash, just because I love that book so much. I love Neil Stevenson. I, I, his language is just so poppy. I love the way he gets in and plays with, with ideas. Where did you come up with the idea to set this in Nigeria? That was pretty easy decision. When you look at global trends, the fastest growing part of the world is, is Africa. And Asia to some extent. But Nigeria, by the end of this century, is going to be one of the five largest countries in the world. At some point, it could overtake China, uh, just in terms of population growth. It also happens to be a place where, where Christianity and Islam coexist, not always comfortably today. Sub-Saharan Africa is where Christianity is growing. It's also a place where Islam is growing. And in this this future world, I wanted to to kind of think about what would life be like if Christianity and, and Islam kind of got beyond their differences. Now, that sounds kind of far-fetched today, but I mean, we've seen stranger things happen in the past. Very often, there's a conflict. A lot of people suffer and die. And then after the conflict, you go, well, wait a second, you know, maybe, maybe we can find a way to come together. That's part of the backstory of Our Lady of the Artilex, is there was a, a Nigerian civil war that was really atrocious. And afterwards, the Christians and the Muslims basically decided we have a lot more in common here than than what separates us. It's very interesting just reading about, I don't know a lot about ben, Benin City. Is that how to pronounce it? Yeah, yeah. But it came across, I'm reading it and I'm picturing Wakanda. Uh, yeah. It's a very glorified vision of what Benin City will be in the future. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think of it as kind of cyberpunky. It's a mixture of gleaming new towers and 
subterranean infrastructure and vernacular architecture, the architecture of the poor. Whether that's the way it's going to look 250 years from now, who knows? Today, Benin City is not a big city today. Google it and, and kind of look on the on the map, you'll, you'll see that. But, but again, with the kind of population growth that they're experiencing in Nigeria and what I believe will be economic growth that comes in behind that, anything is possible. Did you consult with any actual androids before you read, the, <laughs> before you started writing the book? <laughs> no, I, if you know any, I'd love to talk to them though. The only one I know is Alexa and I don't think she'd be much help. <laughs> I don't ever talk to her. Oh, good. <laughs> she, she never gets it right when I talk to her. I think she's purposely doing it. You know, it's, I asked for one song to be played. She plays something totally unrelated. I go, that's not what I, I find myself yelling at, at a, an artificial intelligence. That's scary. That, that that's getting close to a Turing test. I thought you were going to ask something different. I thought you were going to ask, did I talk to any people in Nigeria? Did you? Have you ever been there? I've never been, but I I did talk to a number of people. I know people there. And I tried to reach out and, and find as many readers, beta readers as I could from Nigeria. And I just asked them a lot of questions. I want to get this right. I'm a, you know, I'm like a white Midwestern American guy and I'm setting a story in in Africa. I don't want to fuck this up. And they were super gracious and helpful and corrected spelling and some of the foods that I I had being served were wrong and some of the dress and things like that were a little bit off and through that process I hopefully got it closer to reality. And your character Serafian is a, an interesting character because he didn't start out as a priest. He was a lay individual and worked in computer coding. Is that right? Yeah. Neuroscience and technology, specifically artificial neuroscience at the time. So where did he come from? What what inspired him? You know, you're never supposed to say the main character is me and, and, and he's not, right? I mean, he's, he's a priest. I'm not a priest. He's a lot better educated and a lot smarter than I am. Mm-hmm. But he's somebody who, like me, has wrestled with faith, has experienced some trauma, and is... I think trying really hard to reconcile his scientific worldview and his training with this instinct toward belief. That's what I hope comes through with, with Serafian. That's, that's what I think of him. Did you have time to interview or talk with any priests? Yeah, quite a few. And then there's, there's some other writers who've written kind of Vatican intrigue type stuff or books about exorcism and possession that I got pretty deep into. Malachi Martin was one whose books, I mean, I've read almost, I think everything he's written. He wrote a book called Hostage to the Devil in the 1970s that was kind of like, it came out at about the same time, I think, as The Exorcist. And of course, The Exorcist was much more popular and became the movie and this cultural phenomenon. But but Malachi Martin was an actual Jesuit priest who had performed a number of exorcisms and, and had been involved in a number of other kind of interesting church politics behind the scenes. So he brought a really, I think, a more like academic perspective and probably a little more realism, theological realism, I would say, to, to, to his treatment of exorcism in his books and what it, what it involves. Why does it happen? What does it look like? What are the risks to everyone who goes through something like that? I found it interesting. I don't know if you've ever watched the TV series Evil, but there was an episode on there uh, about a girl who might have been possessed. The interesting part was the father was Catholic. The mother was Muslim. Mm. So they brought in, they each brought in, one brought in the the Catholic priest to exercise 
the child, and the other one brought in an imam. The two men of faith are having an argument over whose jurisdiction it is. Because it's like, well, no, that was a Catholic demon. No, that's a that's a jinn. That's a Muslim demon. So I have to do it. Oh, do we have different demons for different religions? Wow, that that I'll have to check that out. That sounds like a that sounds like a pretty interesting show. Catholic demonology is it's pretty intricate. I mean, there it's been it, there's a rich ancient body of literature on this, and, and it draws heavily on obviously on the on its Jewish roots. Um, uh, and sort of Jewish ideas of possession and and the the spiritual or unseen world, it's different in Islam. And again, I don't want to speak for Islam, I, but it's not so much in Islam fallen angels as a fallen race of beings that are made of smokeless fire is how the Quran describes it. And these are these are the jinn, and they came before humans, but in their pride rebelled against God, rejected humans. So there's you know obvious parallels there. And we're kind of banished from the world, but they still have influence. They still can find their way in and wreak havoc. I was wondering, as I was reading this, I was thinking, should I have done more study of Catholicism before I read this book? There seems to be a comfort level and an understanding of Catholicism that I don't think the average non-Catholic reader would have. I think that's true. This is, like I said, I mean, you, you have to write for yourself. Well, you don't have to. I guess maybe maybe you're better off writing for a market. I mean, that you know, a lot of the best-selling authors would say, find the market and write for it. But for me, I can't do that. I've, if I'm going to do this, I mean, I don't have expectations, hopes, but not expectations of becoming some big best-selling author. And, and these things are very, very interesting to me. And I wanted it to be real. I wanted it to be hard science and hard theology. I didn't want, I didn't want a lot of squishiness on either side. I hope people can read it and, and, and enjoy it and maybe be stimulated into some questions by it without having an intense background on it. But it probably does help. Yeah, but I mean, I, I'm reading it and I'm kind of assuming in certain places, okay, that's that's something about Catholicism I might not fully understand. That doesn't mean I don't find it intriguing and want to read more. When I read The Exorcist many moons ago, I didn't know much about that, about demonology or Catholic ritual, but I was able to get into the the suspense and the terror of it. And I think it's the same way with your book. Oh, thank you. Another writer I love is Gene Wolfe. Gene is no longer with us, but he was also Catholic. If you are looking for it, you will find a lot of Catholicism in his writing. But you also can read his stuff without even ever noticing it necessarily. Like it, it's there, it's in the background. I think it gives it depth and reality. That's kind of what I was going for. I have a very important question to ask. If the Pope were to read this book, would he invite you to the Vatican or kick you out of the religion? I, I, well, I, <laughs> that's a really good question. I think he would invite me. I, I certainly hope so. I mean, I did not set out to offend the Pope <laughs> or, or, or anyone. It's rooted in kind of an arcane history, recent history of Catholicism around the Fatima prophecies, which, I mean, we don't have time to get into it. And it, it is a little bit esoteric, but many, many Catholics are very devoted to the apparitions of Our Lady of Fatima, which were something that happened in the early 20th century and involved a number of prophecies. So I, I talk about that. There's controversy about whether the church has been fully 
transparent and forthcoming about that. There's the uh, this idea that there is a third secret of Fatima that was never really revealed. So Pope might be a little ticked off with me for <laughs> for taking that and running with it. But I, I, I mean, I would hope that he would enjoy it and appreciate it. I think he would. So have any priests actually read the book and, yes. and responded to you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so far, all of the priests who've read it have really enjoyed it. That's very, very encouraging. When I find out that a priest is reading it, it makes me very, very nervous. <laughs> you know? uh, just because, again, I don't, I don't, I'm not here to insult or offend anyone. And also, I am not a priest. I did not go through seminary. So their theological education and knowledge far, far surpasses mine. But so far, they've, they've really enjoyed it and responded well. Have any, any of them said you should become a priest? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I mean I'm a, I think I'm disqualified from that on, on a number of counts. But no, but I mean, you know, they we've had some I've had some really good discussions with them. I was gonna make a joke about Jesuits, but I, I decided to not do that. It's too way too Catholic insider baseball for for a general audience. But the people that I I mean I look I'd love for I'd love to interact with lots and lots of people on this. The people that I'm in some ways there are three groups that I'm most interested in talking to about the book or reaching with the book. Catholics, of course, Muslims who are really play an important role in this. And I have a great love, sorry, that's my dog, a great love and respect for Islam. And so I really wanted to do it justice. And then agnostics, people who are who don't know, who haven't made up their mind, but they're interested. Any any anybody in that falls into those groups, I think would be would would I think be interested in them. I have one question. Is your dog Catholic? <laughs> All dogs are Catholic. <laughs> Talking about it. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> my, my dog is, is is outside my door saying, what are we having for Sabbath? I go, <laughs> I don't know. I, I can't remember ever keeping Sabbath. This is a little game I like to play with with the writers. Your book is picked up by a producer and turned into a movie or a long-form TV show. Which would you prefer? A long-form TV show. Okay. For and sure. Now, now, now he, they're asking you to cast the show. Ooh. Who do you see playing the, the various leads? Gosh. Oh, that's really good. I haven't thought about that. I, I, I feel bad, but I don't remember her name. The actress who, was, who played the Imperial Inquisitor in the Kenobi series would be great as Nimono Mbambu, who is the female lead in the book. She's a, an imperial praetor, like a, basically like a warrior nun. For Seraphian, boy, that's a good one. Wow. I'm gonna, I have to start the Jeopardy theme song. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Gary Oldman? Maybe. Oh, well, he, he's always good. So Yeah. Or, yeah, I think, yeah, he would be, he would be interesting. But you stumped me. He's, okay, well, Gary is, is in the corner listening, so <laughs> I have no contact with Gary, Gary Ullman whatsoever. What question about you or the book would you like to answer, even though I haven't asked it? Well, you've covered a lot. You've covered a lot. I, you know, I guess one, maybe one question would be, what business does religion have in science fiction? That is a good question. And, you know, you're going to get some people, there's some people out there who've kind of come at me like that. Like, what do you, what, what is this? Like, why are you putting this in the future? Well, because I look at reality as it is. And the reality is way, way, way more than half the planet has a religious faith of one kind or another. Mm-hmm. 
And in most places in the world, it's growing in sub-Saharan Africa, in, in Northern Africa, in Asia, the places where population is really booming. Faith is also growing. So I don't think it's going away. <laughs> and to me, it's like one of the reasons I wrote the book is because when I read a lot of science fiction, there's just absolutely no discussion of it whatsoever. It's like, it's like, it's never existed. Not only is it not in the future, but it didn't even exist in the past. You know what I mean? As a, as a point of reference. And I find that it's not offensive. I mean, I, it doesn't bother me. I mean, I, I don't need faith in everything I read far from it, but I find it incomplete, I guess. Mm. And I really wanted to, to find a way to integrate it into a science fiction story in a way that was not preachy, you know, not heavy handed, but, but did it justice that honored, honored that part of our humanity. Terrific. So where can people find your book? Amazon. It's on Kindle Unlimited. Right now it's exclusive on Amazon. And you can find me on Twitter at Andrew Gilsmith. Okay. Very good. You don't have a, a web page yet. Not yet. That's a whole other story. You, you got to work on that. Oh gosh. Okay. Well, Andrew, yeah. thank you so much. I appreciate your being on Life Slices and I hope you'll come back with uh, your next book. I would love to. Thanks, Steve. This was really fun. My thanks to Andrew Gilsmith for joining us on Life Slices. If you want an exciting and thought-provoking read, pick up a copy of Our Lady of the Artilects. And keep an eye on Andrew. He may be new now, but he could be a classic tomorrow. And isn't that what science fiction is all about? If you like this program, please like us and subscribe on social media and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beatnik Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesley and Studios.